0: Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business, and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day, and I'm joined this afternoon by two men at the top of the property game. We have Liam Bailey, the global head of research at Night Frank, and Tim Hyatt, the head of London residential at Night Frank. Property can sometimes seem like a bit of an opaque and mysterious business, but in this episode, which gets nice and technical, Tim and Liam lift the lid on its inner workings, revealing how they got into the game, the challenges that will face London in the year ahead, and where to put your cash in 2020. But before we start this episode, I'd love to tell you very briefly about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get four issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door across the year, full of all those invaluable insights from the world of entrepreneurship, style and culture that you'd hope for as well as, of course, some exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, if you're a podcast listener, which you obviously are, you now get 20% off your annual Clubhouse membership, meaning you get the full Gentleman's Journal experience in full colour for just £56 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. To get that, just enter the code POD20, that's pod 2 at thegentlemansjournal.com club. That's pod20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We're here to talk about the property industry, which is obviously one of the biggest, the most influential industries, especially in London at the moment. But it's also quite opaque and very competitive, especially to people... On the outside. I wonder how you both first got your start in the property game. Tim.
1: Uh nothing to do with property. I started selling uh wooden toys oh, wow. in a toy shop on the King's Road. <laughs> uh and then I worked in retail mm-hmm. at Tyrac Oh nice. Selling ties in Kensington Mall. Is
0: Tyrac still around?
1: Yeah. Okay. Still is that is that is, This is not a rack tie. No. Not very useful for people listening. (laughs) Uh, It's a lovely tie. But a great sort of, it was a start of getting to know sales techniques and people. It was a good business. Went over to Paris to open three stores there. And then I just grew up too quickly. I went to work in Paris and I was, all my mates were at university or they were traveling and I wasn't doing any of that. So I went away to South Africa where I was born, came back after six months, then I went to Foxton's because I think my brother at the time played squash with John Hunt. Okay. And uh, he gave me a three-minute interview, and I think I started the next day uh, at Fox in Zim Fulham, uh, where I then went on to spend 11 years of my life Brilliant. learning the intricacies of sales and nettings.
0: Three-minute interview, what did he ask in three minutes? Uh, are you any good? Okay. <laughs> What's the answer when someone asks I said, you that?
1: I don't know, but I can, I can give it a good go. Great uh, answer. I'm keen and I like people. You see that will do.
0: A different yeah. era, maybe.
1: A different era. but look, more. I, there's lots of mixed stories on that, but for me, Foxen's was a real institution. Of course. It was a phenomenal place. I learned most of the good bits that I brought with me to Knight Frank. Um, and it was just, it was great. Yeah.
0: All things great. What about you, Liam? How did you get into this game?
2: Um, so I started, I left university in 93, so it's the, it's the recession. Uh, I, I struggled to get onto the milk round, to get a, to get a graduate job, so I thought well, I'll retrain. I'm going to become a chartered surveyor and I thought I'd become a rural practice surveyor. So I then went to Sara and Sester, but they said, before you come, you need some experience. So I had to go to France to work on a farm, and then I worked uh, for John Paul Getty on his estate oh, wow. um, in Buckinghamshire. Uh, so that was great, so really good sort of- um, Good cricket
0: pitch on that estate. Fantastic. One I, of the I, best I, I, in I, the
2: country, apparently. One of the best, and oh. one of my jobs was to help mow the uh, the, the cricket pitch, wow. uh, so I know it very well. <laughs> um, and then I um, yeah, moved into, into rural practice, so selling and buying farms and estates and so forth. And I just had this desire to get into London. So I then moved into King Sturge as it was, um, and then eventually switched over to come to Night Frank. And we
0: spoke a little bit before about it Tim, but how in the uh, years since you both started has the property industry changed? Is there one way in which things are very different in 2019 than they were in the mid 90s?
1: I think there are a lot more threats around Yeah. now. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a much easier flight of where people can go if they want to get property advice. Um, but look essentially a state agency is a state agency right it's all about people it's all about connecting with people qualifying them understanding what they really want uh, and working for a business that has got the ability to command getting the right sort of instructions for us to be able to sell all that and mm-hmm. um, I've had the best of both worlds you know at Pakistan's I have volume more in the lower end of the market than the upper end of the market and at night Frank we're working hard to continue to grow our position in the lower market. But really, our DNA is
0: in the middle to upper end of the market, super prime, yeah. which I know we'll be talking about later. I hope so. So w- London, of course, of sitting in London, you spoke about how much you wanted to get into London. London is still the, as far as cities go, the kind of biggest global brand city. And I think in your wealth report, you identify that it's now the number one city in the world. On which metro we'll talk about, but uh, it's beaten New York certainly. Why, why is London still in vogue, even with all these problems
2: of Brexit and political nightmares? I think look, every every year, you know, we've been running the wealth report. London comes out sort of near the top or at the top of our, our, our various uh, city indices. I, I think the reality is there is no other city like London, in the sense that in America, you know, the political, financial, and tech centers are split between you know Washington, New York, and, and uh, San Francisco. And everywhere else, um, globally, you tend to get a split uh, between th- those different functions. In the UK, London takes all of that and actually takes, really pr- provides that role, uh, certainly from business and financial services and tech, for for Europe as a whole. So it's, it, it is uniquely placed in terms of the, the kind of the, the ecosystem of um, business and um the, uh, the wider kind of um, uh, tech and, 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 and finance cluster. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, it it's just it stands apart from every other center. The other thing that I, I think is really interesting, just as an aside, so we launched the World Report in about 30, 40 places around the world, uh, and I, I do a number of their presentations. And everywhere we go and, and launch the report, whether it's in America or in Europe or in Asia, we get a request beforehand to say, guys, can you just localize the content? Talk about Hong Kong, talk about Singapore, talk about New York and just make it relevant to the local audience. The only place you never get that request is London, because actually the audience in London don't really want to hear about London, they want to hear about the world. Mm-hmm. And actually that globalised view is, from my experience of, of, of taking the report around the world, is kind of unique, really, to London.
0: Yeah, and what are the th- what are the, the challenges to London? What's likely in the next five, 10 years to potentially knock it off its perch, do you think?
2: Well, I think the, I mean, t- t- to my way of thinking, the, the, the major, strengths don't change, you know, English language, rule of law, clear property, property titled education um, offer and so forth and lifestyle offer. I mean, it, it's just got a very compelling offer. And even even the housing stock, uh, the prime market in London is, is unique um, proposition compared to other other global markets. The issue the risk really is probably homegrown. I mean, ultimately it comes down to taxation and regulation from the UK. Mm. So ultimately, I think whatever government we have in power in the future has the ability to control uh, and influence the success of London. That's where the threat comes from. I don't really see an external threat in terms of competition from elsewhere uh, taking um, business from London particularly. Mm. I think it ultimately comes down to our politicians about how they manage uh, the offer that London provides.
1: Yeah. What- I think, just adding to that, you know, we, um, we've got a business that's split fairly equally now, especially in London, from a sales and lettings perspective. On the letting side, there's so much attraction to wanting to bring in talent from around the world. We're we'll end up having to house them, be it for six months if they're on rotation starting here, then go to New York, then go to Hong Kong, whatever it might be. So that's, that's a big driver for us. And our Canary Wharf office, for example, is a good barometer if they're busy. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know that London and the ratings market is going to be busy, and it's been consistently busy for about the last 10 years. And on the other side, on the upper end of the sales market, one of the attractions that um, Lim didn't touch on is, is education. You know, a lot of our clients are coming here because they know the education is, is so good.
0: Yeah. And what are the other ways that other cities try and attract this kind of global uppercuts of, of ultra-high net worth individuals? How do other governments try and
2: incentivize them to join their cities and buy their? Well, I think, I mean, there are a number of countries, uh, particularly in Europe at the moment, which, who are actively targeting the world's wealthy. So Italy, for example, brought in a, a new uh, tax regime um, this year which effectively takes its model from the, the UK non-domiciled um, mm-hmm. taxation um, system. And the flat tax they brought in has certainly had an impact on the Italian market. And you've seen a number of wealthy people relocating to Italy to take advantage of that, of that flat tax structure. You've got golden visas and different sort of schemes in places like you know, Portugal and Spain and so forth. So there are countries trying to attract rich people and, and, and um, entrepreneurs to their countries. I think in terms of the cities which are, are, are you know, that provide competition for London you've only really got um New York like I suppose arguably Hong Kong and Singapore at the current time that those that really you know, New York dominates the Americas uh, in the same way that London dominates Europe um and then I suppose really there's a, there's a competition between Singapore and Hong Kong in terms of their their position uh, within the Asian markets but obviously with what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment um, that that situation is obviously um you know, more competitive at the moment yeah And there's one of these interesting kind of metrics
0: in the wealth report when they look at London is this lifestyle metric. How it's kind of nebulous. Lifestyle could be anything. How do you kind of um, how do you how do you
2: what's the barometer of how good a lifestyle is? Oh, it's carefully calibrated. Um, We (laughs) we uh, we, you know we we take a number of sources. So we look at actually you know where where do the rich live? Uh, Actually, where where do they have homes? Uh, as, As a sort of an instant barometer of actually where are they attracted to. Uh, we then overlay that with uh, quality of, as, as Tim was saying, you know, quality of education offer, uh, so quality of universities, um, schools, etc. We then look at um, various metrics on restaurant, hotel, um, and other lifestyle oh, wow. measures as well. So um, it's what, how
0: many Michelin stars are in yeah. the capital? Yeah. Right. So do you have to go out and... And test all of them. I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> you should try and get them I'd next love year. To do that. You should have your own restaurant column too. So sure <laughs> uh, Liam, sorry, it'd be great. Um, am I right in thinking as well that there's a lot more US buyers now buying in in London? Has there been a huge upswing in that?
1: I wouldn't say there's been a huge upswing, but there's definitely more appetite coming through. Why is that? Uh, the dollar. Right. What's going on? Political uncertainty. I mean, they have Trump, we have Boris. <laughs> Uh, We don't really know where that's going to go, but they seem to to clash and intertwine quite nicely together. Uh, You know, we've got some big American brands coming into London as well, so their senior management are coming from the States and we're tending to house them. Some of them are in it for the long term, Mm -hmm. they see good value, they're moving away into second-hand stock in the sort of safe areas like Notting Hill, Kensington, where they've always been. so there's a bit of a myth. Some some people think that the American buyers have, haven't been around. We've seen an uptake of about 10%. I would say over okay. the last 10 years.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think also the uh, I think there was quite a big shift because of Trump's tax tax policies. So a lot of the um, American corporates and, and even the hedge funds held a lot of funds offshore. They weren't being repatriated because of the risk of taxation once the, once the funds are brought back into uh, into America. Because Trump basically created a kind of a, um, a, an amnesty, effectively, to bring funds back into America, you pay a one-off tax and you can kind of move, move on with your, um, with your business, that encouraged a lot of um, money to come back into the US. The, the hedge funds have then re-exported that. So there's been a lot of activity in the past sort of six months um, or slightly longer actually in, in London where a number of American hedge funds have either opened or they've expanded operations here and therefore they've brought staff over um, and actually, you know, some of Tim's buyers and, uh, and certainly tenants are, are part of that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a, uh, a number of developments recently in, in sort of Marlborough and Mayfair where American buyers have certainly become more notable. I think as, as Tim says, they've never been dominant players. Um, they tend to be influential in the kind of the mid to upper end of the prime market. Um, but I think just this year, it's, it, it's fair to say that there's been enough activity to, for it to be a kind of notable trend.
0: Yeah. Yeah. of course plus the embassy moving from to yeah. square yeah. yeah and which London neighbourhoods you touched on a couple before Tim Notting Hill and Kensington which neighbourhood brands are the kind of the global brands that people want to buy and is it still Chelsea and Kensington or are there a new one better not miss any off but it, <laughs> it, it, it's the old favorites: Kensington yeah. Notting Hill Mayfair
1: Belgravia Knightsbridge and Chelsea
0: right and are there any that you think it would, might come into those ranks look they all have
1: their moments yeah. Um, it tends to be centered around what's going on with the infrastructure so transport, restaurants that Liam touched on for the wealth mm-hmm. report shopping, parks, health um, the area that seems to have had a, a, a consistently good run of it over the course of the last two or three years has been the Mayfair mm-hmm. area just down the road and around here a lot of building work going on um, two huge developments going on in Grosvenor Square one completed, one underway and people like that ease. You've got everything on your doorstep. You can get out to the airport relatively quickly. Um, you can go to the park. You can go to any number of decent restaurants around here. And there's sort of mini communities that are beginning to form in each of these hubs with the expat communities, which is again, you know, we deal with a very diverse yeah. range of nationalities, and you get certain nationalities tending to go to to certain pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of them, bar none, funny enough, in the last six months, all of our prime central London offices, we call them, have seen a sizable uptake in terms of deals done uh, and volume. And I think that's just because the the appetite's there. We are Brexit fatigued, yeah. Um, even though we're crying out for a decision. Um, and I think when there is a decision, there'll be a huge waft of cash being released. So the capital market guys that we have will will have a much busier time of it. But I think people just want to get on with their lives. Yeah. And I think the people that we're selling to now, as long as it's realistically priced, and we sort of grade our stock from A to, to C, if it's a motivational vendor who's prepared to take a realistic price because he will see value when he goes on to buy somewhere else, he'll sell and he'll sell quickly. Whereas it, this time last year when Brexit was going on, our buyers were trying to talk themselves out of a deal. Yeah. You know, They, they almost wanted it to fall through. Now there's an appetite, it's less people, but those people are transacting much more quickly.
2: Yeah, can I just chip on the, on the um, just on the on the locations? Well, I, I totally agree with what Tim was saying about the, the kind of the, the key neighbourhoods. I think one thing I find interesting is how the estates, um, the big London estates, have, have been working over the past few years to improve and sort of tra- transform their uh, their areas. So obviously here in Mayfair, but also in Marylebone and then also the Cadogan Estate as well. And actually, that investment in placemaking um, and you know the, the retail yeah. offer and uh, and actually the streetscape to try and make these de- these locations much more of a destination. And actually, Tim's point about Mayfair is you know is really well made because the the transformation that the um, Groban Estate have been making um, Mount, Street. It, it, or Mount Street and yeah. so on is, is is really you know you have a brand, you have an incredibly strong brand already. But actually, you uh, what they what they've done shows actually how you can even enhance that. And actually, you know even becomes even more attractive and um, aspirational uh, to a wider range of people.
0: Yeah, And what about away from the central prime, what about the more peripheral areas? Are there any kind of unusual outsiders where people are are really getting excited? Do you know, it's a a really mixed bag. So this morning um,
1: I got together with three of the offices, Richmond, uh, Chiswick and Barnes. Barnes has been a little bit affected by the closure of Hammersmith Bridge.
0: Of course,
1: but then there's a flip side of that that actually the local community are quite happy because it's It's nice and quiet at the moment and it's going to be like that for the next three years people buying into it are slightly hesitant because they're thinking what's it really going to be like but they might be getting slightly better value last week alone the Barnes office agreed five offers you know varying from two million to five million then you go to Richmond the Richmond market last year had no prime market whatsoever absolutely nothing this year they're back on track and they're flying. And then Wimbledon, they've got the highest number of instructions out of the three offices. They've got over 90 properties on their books at the moment. But they're really struggling. They're struggling to get their clients at realistic prices to be able to sell. And what tends to happen with the, the greater London offices, the fringe offices, is that when PCL is doing well, mm-hmm. they tend to suffer uh, a little bit more. PCL being Prime. Prime Central London, yeah. so the six offices I referred to early on. When they're a little bit quieter, then people go out and see value and better okay. spaces in Wimbledon and Clapham and all the other areas. Yeah. So,
0: like everything, it, it's a mixed bag. I, I knew we couldn't get, go long without mentioning Brexit, and we've touched on it already. If there is a no-deal Brexit, what does that mean, not just for the London property market, what do you think is going to happen in London with wealth and with investment and with foreign investment
2: I think it's'm um, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist about about um, the outcome of, of, of brexit um, whichever way it falls really because if you look at the commercial markets so the commercial property market you, it reveals quite an interesting truth about the position um, that corporates and employers think about London so the past two or three years since you know through the brexit process we you know our commercial leasing businesses have never been busier I mean two years ago it was almost a record year it's been not quite a record year last year um, but certainly you know one of the strongest years plus ten years in terms of the volume of space that businesses have been leasing in central London and ultimately these are relatively illiquid bets that they're taking on London as a place they want to employ people uh, and they want to expand their operations and actually it's been an unbelievable success story so actually Despite the fact that actually the media narrative has has been, is is pretty negative about actually the business impact of Brexit, quietly behind the scenes, I mean, London's economy hasn't been doing badly. You know, we're at record employment in London. Uh, Take up of space by finance firms and tech firms has has never been higher. And actually, ironically, um, the number of people employed in financial services in London now is higher than it was back in 2016 before the referendum. So, you know, business actually, has, uh, whatever the CBI say or whatever the other, the other um, groups say, business has made a vote of confidence in, in, in the London market. I think to Tim's point about, about Brexit and uh, its impact on the market, you know, we, we are seeing you know, a lot of people registering through Night We've got very strong uh, numbers of applicants, viewings are very high, offers being made are very high. They're just not yet translating in serious volumes into deals, and to me, it comes down to the, there is a slight mismatch between the buyer and the seller at the moment. Sellers are not willing to uh, to take to accept um, cheeky offers in, in in the way that the buyers may want them to. But there is, if we look at the amount of money waiting to come into the London market, and we did a calculation, you look at all of our um, buyers uh, and look at the midpoint of their kind of their, their stated range, their, their offer price. Uh, we've got about £45 billion worth of money waiting to come to the market. And that's twice as high as it was three years ago. It's the highest level since 2012. So by any measure, um, buyers may not be transacting right now, but they're positioning themselves for the end game uh, at wh- whatever point that comes yeah. in terms of a Brexit decision. So I think that you know, the, the, the change in the market will come relatively quickly. Uh, I think with a with a no deal, I think the pound falls, and I think actually you hit that point of maximum pain and buyers come in. And I think actually with a deal, I think confidence returns quite quickly, the pound begins to rise, and actually foreign buyers particularly think, actually, this is the moment to, to yeah. add.
1: No, I mean, from, from sales and lessing side, we'll start with lessings, with what Liam was saying. People have been knowing what's coming down the track for a while now. This is, this is not new, and yet uh, the commercial take-up that Liam referred to is at its strongest it's mm-hmm. ever been. And if you've got that going on, with such an international base, we let to over 70 different nationalities... Our lettings teams this month, and this has been consistent now for the last two or three years, have been getting bigger and bigger in terms of transactional numbers. Uh, In fact, we did more transactional numbers on the letting side than we did on the sales side in August. So they're flying, which shows that there's confidence there in terms of housing people. That's one side. That's like temporary accommodation. But there's always a certain amount from those guys that get spat out and they want to then move in to, to find something to buy. On, on the sales side, it's almost why not. You know, we were only talking six months ago. I was almost calling this market. Could the market go any lower? Mm. Question mark. And with interest rates being as they are, the people that you're probably looking that are transacting at the moment are people that are in it for the long term. If, if you want to be opportunistic about this and, and buy something on the turn, now's not your market. If you're looking to buy something that's representing good value, that you can finance very cheaply, and it becomes a lifestyle product that you want to feel proud about, you can lock it up and go, and have it as a bolt hold in London, which a lot of our international buyers do, or it's something that you want to live in, we've got a great deal of appetite for it. Yeah. And i I, look, whatever happens in October, is the market's gonna suddenly come to a close? No. I really don't think it will. I think we know our market now, Um, there'll be a wobble and one thing I have learnt over the years of doing this job is that when there is a headline the market freezes for a while Uh, and then people adjust to it they get an idea of what it really means to them they look at it and they think it's not too bad they look around London they think about all the good that's coming out of London at the moment in terms of infrastructure cranes transport um, our ranking within the world as Liam referred to how it gauges for people and People are there. They're optimistic and they're confident about buying.
0: And I want to talk about super prime property, which is a phrase that gets thrown out a lot. But what does what does super prime mean to a to to the layman?
1: Okay. So London, from Light Frank's perspective, uh, super prime is ten million and over uh, in the country. It's five million and over, and in internationally, it really represents about one percent. Okay. So we, you know, we've been working around nurturing that business. Forever and ever, like uh, yeah. Frank. But within the last uh, two years, um, we've launched our new private office, uh, which is fully integrated between residential and commercial, uh, and they are real estate advisors. Um, advising and transacting for all of our high net worth clients, family offices, and their advisors, with the benefit of having one point of contact. Yeah, And the take up of that has been huge because people. In this sort of arena like to feel that they have complete discretion. It's confidential trading, Um, they like to be able to go to one trusted source who can deal with all their property requirements, be it commercial or residential, and that's what the private office has to offer. And the market I have to say for them over the course of the last six months uh, has been pretty active. Now if there was something really detrimental about what was going on with Brexit you would think that would be one of the first areas to be hit. Uh, but it hasn't been, of course.
2: Actually, no, I mean, I think the super prime market uh, sales market has performed very strongly over the past twelve months. Uh, it was probably it was the first market to, to be hit quite badly after the uh, the changes to stamp duty back in two thousand fourteen, um, and that 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 downturn in pricing um, was you know, deeper and for longer than other parts of the market. And I think actually it reveals thing about about the the, the London market, particularly with relation to Brexit, that when when value is felt to be offered in the marketplace, people will respond. So the numbers of deals, uh, as Tim said, that we did in our super prime market over the past uh, twelve months uh, was as hu- as high as it's ever been since two thousand fourteen. So actually, we're kind of getting back to the levels pre um, stamp duty change. But because buyers see a value in, in, in terms of where, where pricing sits, I think the other thing about the super prime market is the reason for that for that you know the, that additional uh, tier of, of definition from prime to super prime I suppose, is but is because the buyers begin to change, you're moving into a world where the the wealth of the buyer is at, a significant, at such a level that actually their behaviour is is slightly different. It may not actually be based on annual bonuses and income. It's actually from a deeper source of wealth. And therefore, actually, their approach to the market is a much more discretionary purchase generally. And therefore, their requirements, certainly from Developers and actually, how, how properties are offered is, is much more exacting because ultimately they don't need to buy that additional property.
0: Yeah,
1: and they pay for a product, they pay for the right sort of product. Yeah,
2: let's
0: get an idea of the size of that market. How many super prime properties are there now in London, do you think? Are we talking tens, we're we talking
2: hundreds, we're we talking thousands? Oh, we're talking th- thousands, but it's yeah. it's a, it's I'm trying to think actually. If we say there's say 500 sales a year above that level, um, then yeah, it's a few thousand. Yeah, and they're all centered in those. Those
0: prime central yeah. locations we're thinking about.
1: Combination of secondhand and new build. Yeah. yeah. You know, people, especially on the international side, if it's temporary accommodation, in inverted commas, they like to have something that's safe. Yeah. Something that's got a lock up and go, something that's got concierge facilities. If they fly, they want to be able to use the gym, they want to be able to park their car safely. So that's why there's been a big upsurge in terms of super prime yeah. top end instructions, uh,
2: centered around mainly the, the PCL offices. Of course. And we, we've done some work recently looking at uh, what we call the ultra prime market, which yes, is, uh, say. the the twenty five million dollar <laughs> plus market. Um, and we were trying to understand really, you know, we, of, of all the global markets, you know, how, how does London sort of stand in context with you know with New York and uh, Hong Kong, etc. And you know, Hong Kong comes out as as being the um, the centre with the big, you know, the biggest density of, of product and also sales mm-hmm. uh, in the ultra prime market, um, followed by London or New York, depending on how the the markets are shifting, but, but Hong Kong does stand way out ahead. Now, Obviously, um, the, the numbers we are, were running were going up to June, things have changed slightly over, over the past couple of months, uh, and that will impact the market there. But the interesting thing about the Hong Kong story, I think, is the fact that it's just, it just shows the sheer impact of, of Chinese wealth on that marketplace yeah. and how it's, how, it, how it's boosted pricing uh, and, the, and the creation of an ultra-prime market in that location. But really, once you step aside from Hong Kong, London and uh, New York, there's really nowhere else. Maybe, uh, you know, if you, if you take, say, San Francisco and L.A. together, um, there's really only those locations that kind of compete on the same yeah. scale uh, as the London market. Are there any you see that c- might come up and have much more super prime? Uh, I mean, I think in terms of cities, probably not. I mean, Singapore has, has a number of sales, but just they're not really, there isn't the volume. Uh European locations, there's nowhere. I mean, the only other location you might point to would be sort of Monaco and Cote d'Azur, just that, that broader area. Mm-hmm. Um, but even there, it's it's nothing like the volume you see in the London market. Yeah. And when we hear about those properties, 25 million and up
0: in the London market, um, and you're kind of someone of my age whose parents maybe you know, bought a property at a reasonable rate, it kind of feels, I don't know, uh, unattainable. If, do we have to change the way we're thinking about property ownership, especially in London, especially for first-time
2: buyers? Do we need to think, well, maybe we, we won't own and maybe that's OK, maybe we should rent? I think I mean, you've can. I think you've got to separate, to an extent, the, the, the performance of, say, the super prime and the ultra prime market. I mean, the, these markets are now, they are globalised, they are driven by global money flows. They are in a slightly different trajectory. Yeah. But your point about, you know, actually affordability in London is, you know, is, is well made because it, it is a, an issue uh, which is, is a live, huge issue politically uh, within London. But it's also... Reflected in many other successful cities. I mean, we did a report earlier this year called Urban Futures, which looked at the same issue. that actually, the problems that London faces in terms of affordability and access to accommodation by younger workers, particularly, is reflected in pretty much every successful city around the world. It kind of comes with the territory. You know, if you if you become a destination where employers want to congregate, then basically young people with talent want to be there, and they will sacrifice um, space and convenience to try and access those jobs. Yeah. And actually, the, you know, the, the issue you see with affordability in London is reflected completely in places like San Francisco or Berlin um, and increasing numbers of locations around the world. It, it really is. It, unfortunately, it kind of comes with being a successful global yeah. city. Do we need to change then our, our outlook on what it is to be successful?
0: In our parents' generation, home ownership was my parents' generation certainly was the, was the thing. Now, do we need to think maybe like other cities in Europe, you just rent for a long period of time and that's OK? I think the rental market in, in the UK as a whole ha, ha,
1: has driven a forced accepted choice of tenure now. Because, um, you know, government's done a lot to try and support the would-be people who like to get onto the property ladder, but they simply can't afford to do it. Mm-hmm. So they've just recently introduced a ban on agents being able to charge tenant fees. I mean, that's good as far as I'm concerned, because it, it helps people save a little bit of money They yeah. can go towards a deposit that they can buy. Uh, it gets rid of I hope in time the rogue agents the small independents and now we are seeing more people because of the housing crisis that simply can't afford to put down the deposit the, the irony is if you look at a monthly mortgage repayment mm-hmm. versus a monthly rental payment yeah. uh, your your mortgage repayment is probably 25 to 30% cheaper than your, than your rental payment it's just people simply can't raise yeah. the deposit mm-hmm. I think it, when it comes to the wealth it's exactly the same as it was when the when the sales market was absolutely booming. You know, mm-hmm. you accumulate your own wealth as you aspire throughout your, the, the course of the journey of your career. And if you get better than that, you accumulate more money, you accumulate more money then you can afford to get onto the property ladder and it all sort of falls into place. I think it's just a lot tougher now than it was.
2: Yeah. Well, I think I think also to Tim's point about um, about the performance of all the demand for, for lettings property. I mean, we, we've been doing a lot of work with um, PRS developers um, and other players who are coming into the London market uh, and you know, one of the, the, the questions they're addressing really is actually will people, you know, is there a demand for you know, very small uh, residential units in very central locations or near transport hubs? You know, if you look at say the student housing model, which effectively is in, in incredibly small private accommodation and then sort of shared facilities, is that something which actually you could replicate for say graduates or, or younger workers in, in, in cities? And a number of, of players have, have been looking at that model. Uh, and delivering that kind of product. The problem they're facing, actually, is regulation. You know, some of the, some of the, the concepts they're working with go against current uh, housing regulations around space standards. But I think that those kind of solutions have got to be worked, worked with because ultimately, I think, younger workers are willing to sacrifice space for location. You know, they, they, they would like, rather be in a central location even in a very small um, uh, rental rental accommodation, and actually, if they're expecting to be renting for a longer period of their working lives, then actually the the lifestyle, the ability to access other friends and other and other sort of um, facilities, becomes much much more important. Yeah.
1: That's a course. good point. I
2: mean, the, nowadays these PRS boxes are coming through. I mean,
1: PRS has been talked about for so long; it's only really come onto the radar in the last five years. And the developers that are building now are building out communal spaces where everyone can intertwine so you get a really great residence community. Again, you've got all the facilities of the pools, the gyms, the parking, the bike storage, the electric uh, power points for, for cars, bikes, whatever it might be. So tenants are now, even though they're reluctant to rent, yeah. when they do rent, they're quite happy with their lifestyle. And I think PRS, if it continues, has still got a... A long, long way to go. Of course. Gone are the days of the accidental landlord who was just bouncing out of a two-bedroom yeah. tired flat and trying to get it let. They yeah. just don't exist anymore.
0: But there are of course other places to put your money as you touch on in the Wealth Report, Liam, um, and there are things that have performed incredibly well such as whiskey. There was a bottle that sold for 1.5 million I think last year which uh, sounds ludicrous when you think about it's just one bottle of whiskey. But the, there, there are real trends, aren't there, in uh, these kind of luxury asset classes. Where would you put your money in 2020 and beyond that's not a, not a house?
2: Um, can I, I'll come to that bit of the question. <laughs> okay. The um, I think you know, we, we've been looking at luxury investment assets for a number of years. And the reason, the reason has been because actually lots of our clients, um, not only are they interested in property, they're also interested in you know, classic cars and fine wines and so forth. And they've been interested in understanding the performance of those assets but I think it's, it's part of that wider story that since since the global financial crisis investors became nervous of, of financial investments they didn't really understand and actually the desire or the the attraction of, of, of tangible assets like property and the and the various collectibles that we've talked about um, has become you know much more heightened and actually the, the whiskey story last year was, was an interesting one because it revealed I think how globalization of an asset can have a dramatic impact on value so actually so Indian, and Chinese investors really helped to drive those, those those prices at the very top end, and actually it coincided last year with the opening of direct flights from Beijing into Edinburgh, um, and actually the the growth of Chinese tourism into the kind of distilleries and so forth. So suddenly you have this this sort of globalisation of demand for a certain product, and actually the, the distilleries then react uh, and actually then start delivering um, special bottles and kind of you know, you know, unique um, products, and you then begin to achieve those prices. So. The market demanded it, but ultimately it's, it, it's a globalization story. Uh, in terms of where would I put my money this year? I, you know, I'm going to be, can I be really can I put it in property or not? Uh, you can, but it might be fun if you put it in cider or something. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what I do? Um, I, can I come back to that. I, you
0: come <laughs> back to that. What about Is you? it to be alcohol, or? no? It doesn't have to be alcohol. <laughs> not at all. Uh, it it could be property where would you put your money let's have a nice little nugget for our listeners to take away and and chuck around down the pub
1: I would uh, I think the country uh, the national areas and the hotspots. you know some are saying that you've seen real value but I still think there's a long way to go in the regions
0: do you mean kind of commuter belt towns or even further Birmingham,
1: Manchester, Leeds etc even though some people say it's at the top but if you want a safe bet you can take a long term view Prime Central London
2: any day of the week Okay, I, I, I'm really boring and agree with that because I, I just think that <laughs> well, if it you must look be true. At, then, well, if you look at any any of the major markets globally, nowhere has fallen further or faster than the London market. You know, we're down. Pick your area in London. We're down 15, 25 percent from where you were in 2014. New York's down five percent at the moment. I mean, no other market has had the, the falls we've had, and probably no other markets had the the, the political un, un, uncertainty that we, we've experienced. So actually. You you are re- you are approaching rapidly um, the point of maximum pain, and actually this really is the point to act. And there are so many locations I think in London you you could think about. I, uh, there's a couple of areas I think are interesting. One is Chelsea, because of all of our prime central London locations, it it seemed to be hit the hardest by price falls, and actually is now comparing favourably with even areas um, sort of east of the city, uh, in, in in sort of the city fringe. And then the other areas I think about is think about infrastructure projects like Crossrail. Yeah, um, everyone's been focused on Crossrail itself and the stations along the along the line, um, and hopefully when that opens in the near future. Um, <laughs> uh, also, just think beyond that. Think about the kind of the, the next stop out, or the next or the next two stops out. So there are lots of locations, like for example, sort of you know uh, Warwick Avenue or Maida Vale, which are accessible to Crossrail, but not right on the actual uh, Crossrail route, but will be impacted by the opening of that that line.
1: The reason why we say property is that Liam's got a great graph that he gives to me to do in some of my presentations, which shows the performance of property in comparison to gilts and bonds. Yeah, You throw wine into that, you throw classic cars into that, and it's all a sort of very hilly mountain. It's going up, it's going down, it's going up, it's going down. With property in the main, it's pretty consistent, and it's a pretty safe bet. The one thing that I would add to that is, um, which I think is the real nugget, borrow and borrow cheap and fix for a long term because um, you know who knows how much longer we're going to be able to borrow these sort of rates, but it is ridiculous in terms of what you can borrow a million pounds for nowadays and the rates you can get for five to ten years. And then if you change that, if that's an investment property and you've got your tenant paying effectively 75% of what could be your pension on a repayment loan, what's not to like about that?
2: Can I just add yes. <laughs> Also in defense of property. Um, <laughs> it's funny the two blokes from Knight Frank could have it, property. It's one of it, your it? random ones. <laughs> you've just decided where you're going to invest. No. Oh <laughs> but I think that you know we, we we are in a you know in quite an interesting part of the cycle at the moment. You know we've had ten years of ultra uh, ultra low interest rates. Um, you know yields on most assets are pretty thin at the moment. Every, everything has been you know values have adjusted upwards because of ultra low interest rates. So one thing with property which really isn't uh, replicated in any other asset class is actually the fact you can influence its performance. So you can buy uh, a location, you can buy a particular property, you know, you can enhance it, you can refurbish it, you can extend whatever, it's, it's an active investment and actually in a, in a period that we're going to have to expect to see low returns on most assets and most investments. That ability to actually influence your investment is, I, I think, going to become a much more attractive um, proposition uh, and a, a reason why property is the is the thing to Brilliant. invest
0: in. Well, you, oh, Tim's more more property defence retirement, <laughs> retirement living. Yeah, that's the way we put it.
2: Uh, I don't, <laughs> but I, it's still still
0: uh, property. Broadly, there, there are lots
1: of different ways of putting it. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people over sixty now that are releasing cash uh, and they're putting into a rental type model that comes with some sort of healthcare facility yeah. to it. And I think that's a a very fast, rapid-growing part of our market.
0: Well, you had it here first. If you want to make a sensible investment, put it in property, not in whiskey, which is a shame, really. I thought maybe a bit of both. Well, if your property goes up, then you can celebrate it with a nice glass of whiskey. Hopefully not 1.5 million pounds worth. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of The Gentleman's Journal podcast, you may well like The Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest quarterly dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, as you may have heard earlier, podcast listeners now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, at www.thegentleman'sjournal.com slash club. That's POD20 at thegentleman'sjournal.com slash club. And if you really like this episode... Why not rate us five stars on the iTunes store or, of course, wherever you happen to get your podcasts? I think that'd be a lovely idea. Anyway, I'll leave you alone now. Bye-bye.